1 Corinthians 13:12 says, "For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face." Today we'll talk about why Christians disagree on certain biblical doctrines. Well, this is Doctrine for Doxology, and this is the final episode before we jump into specific doctrines about God found in the Bible. So we're going to be going through the great biblical doctrines. I'm I'm kind of loosely following a book written by Martin Lloyd-Jones, which was actually a compilation of sermons. He preached some Friday night sermons for about three years going over great biblical doctrines. And so that's what we'll be getting into next week. This is building on some foundational stuff. So just a a quick review. We talked about it's important to know the truth about God. The the Bible means to communicate doctrine, truth, uh, truth statements about God in the Bible. We must worship God in spirit and in truth. So it's very important to know truth about God. How do we know this truth? It is only through God's revelation of himself to us. We can't just use our own human reasoning and reason up to know God. God must uh, basically go downward to us. God must reveal himself downward to us so that we can understand. Okay, so he must give revelation of himself in order for us to know truth about him. He's done that several ways throughout human history, but what we have today, the only revelation from God we have today about himself would be scripture. And so that's that's where we go. That is our our final authority on knowing things, knowing truth about God. So we talked about the authority of scripture some and then last week I talked about the interpretation of scripture and this is sort of part 2 of that. And so I'll I'll kind of wrap up some interpretation things and then the the bulk of today's episode is going to be why do Christians disagree on certain biblical interpretation isn't the bible god's word uh, isn't the holy spirit in you know living inside each of the believers and so shouldn't they know the truth about god why are there disagreements in the christian community so we'll we'll talk about that today now if you ever have questions or comments you can always email me at doctrine for doxology at gmail.com and that's that four is the number four so doctrine number four doxology at gmail.com. You can follow me on Instagram at the real bear Martin. All right. Now, uh, just to kind of wrap up and, and, and tidy up some Bible interpretation principles. Last week, we talked about hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is basically the science of biblical interpretation. And there's different hermeneutics that people use when, when interpreting the Bible. Hermeneutics would be a, a, set of rules so that you can consistently interpret Scripture. You don't want to use a, a one hermeneutic interpreting one passage and then a different set of rules to interpret another passage. You want to, ha- you want to be consistent in your approach to Bible interpretation. And so hermeneutics helps one thinking about hermeneutics, taking an active um mind posture towards Bible interpretation and actually thinking about how you're processing this information and trying to organize that and be very consistent in how you interpret the Bible. That is important, and and, um, the goal of that is to arrive at 
the actual truth of what the Bible is teaching. So hermeneutics is the science of biblical interpretation. There's all kinds of hermeneutics out there. So uh, some people approach the Bible and try to just find a bunch of allegories about anything. And this is this would be um, not this would be what I would say is not a biblical, uh, not a, a hermeneutic that Christians should be pursuing. But just coming to the Bible and trying to find symbols everywhere and and it, it's very creative and you're kind of making up a lot of things. That that would be a bad hermeneutic. But there are different approaches to Bible interpretation. So the hermeneutic that I am uh, recommending, the, the hermeneutic that I try to um, use in my own life are, are built around some of the concepts that I'm getting ready to discuss. The first thing we assume is that the Bible is clear. It, this is called the perspicuity of Scripture. The Bible speaks with clarity. It's not mysticism. It's not a bunch of words where you have no clue what's being said at all. No, it's it's clear words. It, the the authors of the Bible use normal language that um, that is meant to be understood. Now, when we read something like "God is eternal," that is a simple statement. That that it's it's easy to read the Bible and come to that conclusion, and you know that's a truth taught in Scripture. So, Scripture is clear, but it, at the same time, it is really difficult to wrap our minds around some of the concepts taught in Scripture. So, uh, I've mentioned this before, but God is eternal, and we can we can. Uh, hold on to that truth statement and say, yes, that is clear. I understand that. But at the same time, we don't really understand eternity. We you can't grasp that. And so there's plenty of things in the Bible that are tough to fully comprehend, but we can understand basic truths uh, around these areas. And so that's what I mean by the Bible is clear. Okay. Um, now, we always want to practice what's called exegesis when we approach the Bible. We All of the truth that we get out of our Bible study and interpretation is to be from or out of Scripture. We don't want to come to the Bible with our own preconceived ideas or or doctrines or or thoughts and try to shove it in and find a spot to to uh, to place in our own thoughts in the Bible. We want to come to the Bible as empty as possible, trying to get rid of all these uh, preconceived ideas, these these different uh, things that maybe we want to believe. Um, and we want to try to get rid of that, set that apart, or at least acknowledge that they're there before we come to Scripture. And and the truth that we get from Scripture should come out of Scripture. That is exegesis. The opposite of that would be eisegesis. Ice means into, and that would be putting ideas or or uh, doctrines into Scripture. That would be the wrong way of doing it. Now, I also mentioned what's called the analogy of faith, and this is the the concept that we should interpret Scripture using Scripture. And the reason for that is because we believe that God is the author of Scripture. The Holy Spirit was the author behind the scenes, if you will, of all of Scripture. And so, therefore, Scripture is God-breathed, and it is going to be uh, it, it's not it's not going to contradict itself. And so we interpret Scripture using Scripture. We also want to keep in mind the context of each passage. And so I gave some examples of um, verses, sometimes passages that are taken out of context. So we, we want to read everything together and, and make sure that we are trying to understand what the author of 
that book or that letter is is trying to communicate. So we we, we do that using these methods, using Scripture, interpreting Scripture, the context. Another thing that we want to try to do is a grammatical, historical approach to studying Scripture. So we want to look at how this, you know, what's the subject of the sentence, what's the verb. All of those basic things in grammar matter uh, because that's how we, again, we, we try to understand what the author is wanting to convey in in their writings. And so that we want to we want to be thinking about and using all of that. We want to know the historical background of uh, books and when they were written. All of that helps us to be accurate in our interpretation of Scripture. So that's kind of what I talked about last time. Um, a few other points on interpreting Scripture. We always want to interpret unclear passages or vague passages in light of clearer passages. All right? And so so in trying to think of some different examples. Um, one that I thought of is Hebrews 6, verses 4 through 6, is a passage that sometimes is used uh, for people to to say that you can lose your salvation. Now, this certainly is a, is a topic that Christians will disagree on. Um, I do not believe that you can u- lose your salvation, and, and I'll give some verses in a second that I think are very clear on that. Uh, but this passage is one that is often used to to justify a belief that one can lose their salvation. So let me read it, Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. All right? So if you are are thinking about, can a Christian lose their salvation? You read that passage. Maybe you come to that conclusion. Now, if you read just a few more verses, so this would be a context issue here, but if you read a few more verses in Hebrews 6, 9, he, the, the author of Hebrews writes, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. And so when I'm reading that verse, that makes me think that maybe verses 4 through 6 are not speaking specifically of a believer, but an unbeliever. And so um, in, in Hebrews 6, 9, the verse I just read, he says, again, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. All right? Now, that that other verse aside, Hebrews 6, 9, that, that aside, there's also very clear passages in Scripture that once you are saved, you are at peace with God. No one can snatch you out of Jesus' hand. There, there's verses like that. So let me give you a few of those. Romans 5, 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I would say that that peace here, when, when you have peace with God, there is not this constant fear that that peace will be broken. It, it's not a temporary ceasefire, and as long as you, you know, mind your, your P's and Q's, then you will have peace with God. No, this is a peace that you can rest in. If, you, if we have peace with another country, I'm, I'm in America. If we have peace with another country, I'm, I don't lay my head down at night constantly thinking, are we about to be at war? 
So this is not a Cold War mentality. There, there is peace between uh, you know us and the other country, for, for my example. So when you have peace with God, you're not in constant fear of losing that peace with God. Why do you have peace with God? Because you have been justified by faith. You are in Christ. John 6, verses 37 through 39, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. So there, I believe if you are saved, then you that is eternal. You will be raised up on the last day. Jesus will lose none. All right? So there is, yes, the Bible encourages believers to persevere, to be faithful. It challenges us to continue in the faith. But ultimately, if you are truly saved, you are held there by God, not your own good works, not even your own faith. You are held there by God, and no one will snatch you from Jesus' hands or God the Father's hands. Okay, in Matthew seven twenty three, Jesus says, "Depart from me, I never knew you. Not depart from me. I knew you once, but then you did some bad things, and then now, now I don't know you anymore. All right, depart from me, I never knew you." In First John two nineteen, John writes, "They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us." All right. So I, I I think that there are very clear passages in scripture that talk about how the believer is is safe and and uh will not lose their salvation. And anyone who turns, so to speak, and, and leaves the faith, um, when we use language like that, anyone who who turns and leaves, uh either they will be restored eventually or they, they were never a true believer. So that that's um, my take on it, and it's built upon what I believe are very clear passages in Scripture. All right, so we want to interpret the vague or unclear passages with the clear passages of Scripture, and we also want to interpret the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. So we we have the advantage here. We can we we have the New Testament in mind. And when we look back at the Old Testament, so in the Old Testament, we read of God's promises to Abraham. These are found uh, throughout Genesis 12 through 18. You can read about a lot of these, but let me just sum it up to that God would make Abraham the father of a multitude of nations by way of a miracle child, and that child would be Isaac. He was a miracle child because Sarah was barren and well past childbearing age, and they had a miracle child. All right. Abraham was called the a man of great faith in Genesis 15:6. It says, "And he, that is Abraham, believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness." So Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. This verse is Paul's going to use this verse in the New Testament as a foundation for how we are saved. How it is through faith. And so Paul's going to to relate back to Abraham um, on on this issue of faith. Also, we understand that because of the New Testament, it's it's a deep. There's a deeper meaning to Abraham being the father of many nations. I am a Christian. I grew up in church, and so as a boy, we sang a song called "Father Abraham." Father Abraham had many sons. 
and many sons had father Abraham, and I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord, right arm. So if you if you did not grow up in church, you have no clue what I just sang. But if you did, you very likely have sang that song a bunch of different times. So it's a, a nice little children's song. But here's the thing. Why is a non-Jewish boy singing Father Abraham? It's because Abraham um, is, and, and I'm using quotations here, Abraham is, is, the, is the father of, of me because of faith, all right? And this is biblical in the New Testament, Romans 4, 16. Paul writes, that is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Romans 9, 6, Paul writes, But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. So there, within a few words of each other, Paul uses two different meanings for Israel. He's talking about a physical, actual descendants of Israel or, or, or Jacob. So you have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob's name is changed to Israel, and that's where that nation gets its, its name. So not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Okay, uh, Galatians 3, 6 through 9. Paul writes, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. One last verse on this, Galatians 3, 25 through 29. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring heirs according to promise. Okay? So we read the New Test or excuse me, we read the Old Testament in light of what's taught in the New Testament. All right. Uh, lastly here, as far as hermeneutics and Bible interpretation, is this concept of interpreting the Bible literally. And so when you hear about people talking about, well, I interpret the Bible literally, we've just got to be very clear on how that word is being used. So let me give you a few verses. Psalm 90, verse 4, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. 2 Peter 3, 8, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day, okay? Now, what is the literal interpretation of that verse? When we think of this word literal, then someone may say, well, it, th- th- this is this is a mathematical equation. There for for one Lord day, there's a thousand human years. Okay, that that's a a conversion that we can do. Well, it's 
quite obvious that that is not what the author is intending to to teach us here. Peter is writing to show us that God is outside of time. He so so one day to the Lord is a thousand years to us. It, it, this is uh, a poetic type language. Um, this is not to be meant as a, a mathematical conversion. Okay, and so it's quite obvious in that verse. And so. So I would say that I interpret the Bible literally. I am analyzing the the literary genre being used here, the figurative language, and literally what Peter is trying to communicate is that God is outside of time. So I have interpreted that passage literally. But someone else may may use the the word literally in a, in a different way that it should be it a thousand years should be interpreted literally and that means that always means that a thousand years is going to be a thousand uh, times that the earth res- revolves around the sun okay and that is the literal interpretation so when i say that i interpret the bible literally I am factoring in that figurative language. There's poetry in the Bible. There, there's um, apocalyptic literature. There's, there's historical narrative. And so I'm considering the literary genre, figurative use of language, and, and all of that goes into the literal interpretation, okay? And so it's just w- when you start discussing this with other people, just make sure that you, when y'all both say the word literal, that you mean the same thing, because sometimes that can be misunderstood. So you always want to define your terms, or when you're, you, you want to say, now when you say literal, what do you mean by literal, okay? And make sure you're on the, the same page with each other. Now, this is where a lot of Christians disagree on Bible interpretation, and it, so a, a a very good example of this would be in Revelation 20. Are the 1,000 years in Revelation 20 referring to a thousand revolutions of the earth around the sun, or is John the Revelator using this number of a thousand, a thousand years, is he using that symbolically? And so Christians will disagree on this interpretation. Um, and so there's reasons that that they take it literally to be like a, a literal 1,000 uh, times the earth revolves around the sun um, versus someone's, some others would say, yes, I'm interpreting this literally, but John is using um, symbolic language here, and this 1,000 years really could be a long span of time, okay? And so it's not a specific 1,000 years. And so there, there's different approaches there. It's not that either side is trying to soften or weaken scripture or that they don't believe what the Bible is actually teaching. It's that they're trying to interpret the Bible, taking all of that into consideration. I mean, so so you if you if you don't interpret the thousand years symbolically, you may ask, why in the world would someone take this as symbolic, right? Well, are there other symbols in Revelation? Of course there are. There's dragons with multiple heads and frog demons and locusts with gold crowns and human faces. And certainly there are tons of numbers uh, in, in the book of Revelation that could be taken as symbolic. Um, and so, so there's there's certainly at least reason enough to 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 say maybe John is using this a thousand years in a um, in a figurative type of speech in symbolic language. Okay, R.C. Sproul in a, a book I mentioned last week a lot, Knowing Scripture, he says this about the literal interpretation of Scripture. He says the classical method of seeking the literal sense of Scripture 
meant seeking a knowledge of what is being communicated through the various forms and figures of speech employed in biblical literature. This was done not with a view to soften or weaken or relativize the scriptures, but to understand them correctly, that they might serve more effectively as a guide to the faith and practice of God's people. All right, so given all that, given all that information about biblical interpretation, why do Christians disagree? So isn't the Holy Spirit supposed to reveal truth to Christians and keep them from error? Is God's word not perfect? If if God's word is so perfect, then why do people misunderstand it? Can God not communicate himself clear enough for people to get it? And so this this brings up this this question of why is there disagreement among biblical interpretation? For instance, the issue of baptism. What what should be the method of baptism? I think all Christians would admit that there is a right and wrong answer. And so it's not just oh everybody just kind of does what they what they want. Baptism is an important issue. Uh, but we have to acknowledge that there are disagreements, and and these are um, the the two men that I think of would be R.C. Sproul and John MacArthur. They're friends. Uh, well, uh, R.C. Sproul has passed away, but they they were friends, uh, brothers in the Lord. They they love the Lord. They both have the highest view of Scripture, and if it could be shown to them that Scripture clearly teaches one way or the other, I, I truly believe they would have changed their mind because they desire to. Uh, worship God in spirit and truth to to follow what the Bible says. They just both were convinced after studying the Bible for years and years and years that they they have a, a certain conviction about baptism, and they disagreed on that. All right, and so how do we how do we think about that scenario? Why is that? Why does that happen? Again, if Christians have the Holy Spirit, why cannot why can we not agree on certain? doctrines, okay? Well, first off, Christians are not perfected. When when you become a Christian, it is not like Neo in the Matrix where you just down you know, God just downloads truth into your brain and now everybody's in perfect agreement, everybody knows everything there is to know about the Bible and and God and Christianity. That that's not how it works. We are we still struggle with sin. So Christians are not perfected and this is just general biblical knowledge. There's constant appeals in the New Testament for Christians to grow in maturity, to grow in the faith, to grow in knowledge. And so this is this is just obvious truth, okay? Um, so just a, f- a few verses here, Hebrews 5.14, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Here I think about an Olympic athlete that is is trained it's a lifestyle the way they train their bodies. You don't just pick it up a couple days before the competition. This is this is constant training and and so it is for the Christian who grows in maturity. This this training must be constant. Every day you're reading the Bible. Every day you're you're studying and learning new things. This is constant, okay? So we we need to grow and mature in the faith. And then on top of that, even mature Christians do not know everything. And this goes back to the verse that I opened today's episode with, 1 Corinthians 9, uh, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 13, verses 9 through 12. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Okay, so 
Paul there is using this illustration. When I was a child, I thought one way, and now when I when I was a man, I gave up those childish ways I thought in a different way. And I think he's using that metaphor now to further explain this next verse, verse 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall fully, or excuse me, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So Paul uses the now and then to contrast these these two, um, we'll just say two time periods, these, these two different events, okay? So now we see in a mirror dimly, but then later on, then we will see we will see face to face. And so this I think this is talking about in glory when when we see Jesus Christ face to face when we are with God in eternity, we will know God in a much more full way than we do right now. And so the, even though Christians have the Holy Spirit, even though we have scripture, even though scripture is God breathed, there, there are some things that we don't understand, and we disagree on those things. Now, that is never this disagreement, this disunity is never an excuse to not seek unity. We constantly uh, try to become unified. So when when I'm speaking with a fellow Christian who has a different interpretation of the Bible than me, that should not make me weary of studying the Bible. That should lead me back to studying the Bible. It, we should constantly be going back to Scripture, all right, with with the humility that even the most mature Christian does not have a grasp on everything. There's always something more that we can learn and, and better understand. Also, we can be deceived. Satan is working to sow seeds of disunity and and to uh, to affect the way that we understand passages of Scripture. We see this from Genesis 3, I mean, right from the start, that Satan's desire is to deceive the people of God. Now, the uh, in Matthew 24, 24, it says this, for false Christ, this is Jesus um, talking, he says, for false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Now, I do not think that this verse is teaching that the elect, the Christians, can never be deceived, especially about anything, okay? That's just not consistent with human history. We know that there are Christian men and women who were deceived temporarily, if you will, by Satan. And so there, Satan can still deceive. And we are encouraged by the New Testament authors not to be deceived. They are warning us constantly not to be deceived. James 1, 16, James says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Okay, so so there, there's this realization that Satan is still trying to deceive us. Um, in 2 Corinthians 2, verses 10 through 11, Paul writes, anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. Listen to this. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. So again, Paul is saying Satan is out there. He is trying to sow seeds of of deceit amongst Christians, and we need to be aware of what he's trying to do. Okay, so I think the 
when we think about Christians and being deceived, we we have to realize that Satan is you know whispering in our ear deceitful thoughts. He he is at work in this world, but ultimately the Christian will not be deceived away from salvation, okay? Uh, Luke 22:31 through 32. Jesus says this to Peter as he's telling Peter that you're going to betray me. Um, He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. In 1 Peter 1.5, so that what I think is interesting is Jesus told this to Peter. Then in 1 Peter 1.5, Peter writes, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We are being guarded, and, and that is through faith. John 10.12 Jesus says, he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And listen, the wolf snatches them and scatters them. In contrast to this, Jesus is the good shepherd. And so in John 10, verses 27 and 28, just a few verses down, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So again, the the Christian is not fearful of being snatched out of the hand, of losing salvation or or anything like that. Uh, But at the same time, it's very clear in the New Testament that we are warned not to be deceived by Satan. All right, so Christians can can be deceived, but they are guarded by Jesus Christ. They're, they're, They're guarded internally, if you will, by the Holy Spirit. And the more you are in God's Word, the more the Holy Spirit works that in your heart so that you recognize the deceit of Satan. We constantly have to be meditating on the Word of God. It's a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, okay? Now, another question about Christians disagreeing on certain doctrines in the Bible is, why would God even allow this? Why, why is that a possibility? And I think a lot of times when we, when we think of this question, why would God allow this to happen? What, you know, what is God doing? Why is God working in this way? We have to rest on this verse, Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. We, we hear this verse read in a lot of different contexts, but have you ever thought of this verse when when we when we can't think of why God would work in this way, why God would allow certain things to be, we have to to stand on the promise of this verse that somehow, in some way, God is working this for our good. So how, by God allowing Christians to disagree on certain doctrines, how is He working this for our good? Uh, a few points. I think it is for our growth. How can we grow in unity? How can we develop relationships if there's never any disagreements that we have to work through? And so it's as we are patient with one another, as we show love to one another in our disagreements, that grows the Christian body. It also keeps us humble. It is humbling for me to know that, okay, I have a, a certain understanding about baptism, for instance, that is different from what R.C. Sproul thinks about baptism. But here is like one of the greatest teachers in our you know, lifetime, in this generation, and probably one of the guys who, who has more Bible knowledge than, than a, a lot of people who have ever lived. And 
and I disagree with him, it, it, you know, have I got something wrong? It, it humbles you to know that you could be wrong about certain issues, and it should motivate you to keep going back to Scripture and be sure of your convictions from what Scripture teaches, okay? And so we don't need to think of that in a negative way. We need to think of that in a positive way. God is using this to for our good, even though we may not understand or, or we we may not think man if, if I was God I wouldn't work it that way well you're not God and so God we we have this promise that for those who love God he's working all things for our good and so we we need to rest in that and then look for the benefits um, that can come out of sometimes these disagreements and I, I've, I've kind of hinted at this before but I think one of the key things is disagreements in the Christian community it keeps us in scripture it challenges us to constantly be going back to Scripture. You see, you can have a false unity. If unity is all you want, you can have a false unity. There are plenty of religions out there where if you are a member of that religion, you you have 100% unity on doctrine because an outside source other than Scripture is where the, the ultimate truth lies. So I've talked a lot about Roman Catholicism. They are the ones who tell you, the Roman Catholic Church tells you what Scripture says. It tells you the dogmas and, and doctrines taught in Scripture. So if you want 100% unity, you can go to the Roman Catholic Church. The problem is, what do you do when you read Scripture for yourself and realize that the some of the Roman Catholic doctrines completely contradict what is taught in Scripture? What do you do then? All right, and so so you, there's complete unity out there, but it's a false unity. We we need to always come back to scripture. Um, I think a really good quote on on the Christian responsibility as we read scripture would be this. This is by James Sire. I've never read any book by him, but I came across this quote, and I think it's right on right on point. It's from a book called Scripture Twisting. Again, I have not read this whole book, um, but here's the quote. Christians who respect biblical authority have a special burden to read right. We too are prone to fall into error. In fact, none of us is absolutely right about what God's Word really means. That is why we must ourselves return daily to the Bible, reading and rereading, thinking and rethinking, obeying what we grasp, correcting our earlier readings as new insights as new insight is given us, constantly cross-checking our grasp of Scripture with our pastor, our fellow Christians, and with the historic understanding of Scripture by Orthodox Christianity. So those are, those are lots of uh, checks and balances to make sure that we are approaching Scripture the right way. Now, so, so we know that there are disagreements. I've given you some, some ways to think about why God would allow these disagreements. And then the last thing I want to talk about are are some doctrines, as we get into this long series of biblical doctrines, are some doctrines more important than others? And this would be essential versus peripheral doctrines. And there's a great little article in the back of ESV study Bibles on this, and that, that's the title, Essential versus Peripheral Doctrines. So this next part is from that article. And so there's different ways of breaking up these this hierarchy of doctrines, but this article lists four. And so if you think of like a bullseye graph, the center one would be the most important. The and and so the first category would be the absolutes, the absolute uh, doctrines that you must believe. These are the core beliefs of the Christian faith. Uh, I think a good 
starting point for for what these doctrines would include would be things like the Apostles' Creed. Um, so um, I think justification by faith alone is in here, the substitutionary atonement, the bodily resurrection. So those are the core things that that you need to believe. And, and again, those are just examples, but there's some core doctrines there that are absolutes. Right outside of that, in this bullseye pattern, would be convictions. So these are not core beliefs, but they may have significant impact on the health and effectiveness of the church. So some examples here would be, I would put baptism in this category. Um, There's two main uh, ways of interpreting the Bible as far as basic theological grids, and that would be covenant theology versus dispensational theology. So I would put that distinction in this in this conviction category. Also, things like Calvinism and Arminianism. They're convictions. They are, they're not core beliefs, but they will have significant impact on, on how that church operates, okay? And so I, I, that's, that's what I would put in that category. The third would be opinions. The third category is opinions. These are less clear issues that generally are not worth a church dividing over. And so an example here would be like head coverings during worship. Um, some some denominations have like feet washing services and some don't. Um, things like that. Musical style I would put in this category. All right, so those are opinions. Uh, they're, they're less clear issues in Scripture. And then the the final, the outward branch, would be currently unsettled issues. And this would be questions, okay? Um, Now, eschatology is a tricky one because if you believe Jesus is coming back the next second versus Jesus is probably not coming back for another, you know, 20,000 years, that is going to affect a lot of the way you live life. So eschatology could be in a higher category, but for these questions, for this outer rim of, of uh, disagreements, I would put eschatology, but especially the specific, uh, er, the, the specific issue of like end-time events, okay? Um, so you have Christians that may debate on who's the Antichrist. Is it Obama? Is it Trump? Is it Putin? Is it, you know, this is like constantly going on. These are far-out peripheral issues. And so it certainly should not be anything that uh, divides a church or, or anything like that. So I would put that in this category. Another one would be like, which Bible translation should we use? Um, you, you know, should it is it ESV or King James or whatever? Now, obviously, you don't want to use like a like a cult translation, the Joseph Smith translation or uh, Jehovah's Witness translation of the Bible, but. You know, of the of the English translations out there, there's several really good ones. So this is this is a far out peripheral issue, and and certainly should not like divide a church or cause um a you know a lot of disunity between believers. All right, as we step out of some of this fundamental ground of of where we're going to go in in learning doctrines of scripture, because uh, next week we'll get start getting into specific doctrines about God. There's three three concepts that Martin Lloyd-Jones covers, and so I, I think these are really good. That these, these three concepts, as we think about biblical doctrines, we've got to agree that this is how we approach them. The doctrines must come from Scripture, 
And so this makes me think of the Bereans. We they they cert, they examine the scriptures daily to see if these things that Paul taught were true. So these doctrines must come from scripture. Number two, if a doctrine is clearly taught in scripture, it must be believed. And third, scripture must be greater than your system. And I think that's a, a an extremely important one for me and for everyone else listening. Scripture must be greater than your system. So if you are an Arminian or a Calvinist or a covenant theologian or a dispensational theologian, whatever your system is, whatever your your grid is, that you're how you're thinking about the Bible, Scripture must be greater than that. You you can't try to put everything inside your system um, because sometimes it it might not work that way. Charles Spurgeon has a great quote on this. He says, never be afraid of your Bibles. If there is a text of scripture you dare not meet, humble yourself until you can. If your creed and scripture do not agree, cut your creed to pieces, but make it agree with this book, meaning, meaning the Bible. So, that's how we should think about these biblical doctrines. And so we'll we'll jump into that next week. As a closing verse, thinking about why Christians disagree, I think one verse that comes to mind frequently is Proverbs 27:17. Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. 